I'm Amelia Josephson. I'm a senior manager at the Financial Help Network, which is a nonprofit that unites business leaders, policymakers, and innovators to design and implement solutions to improve financial health for all. And I'm joined on today's panel by Kayla Gallo, Senior User Research, Senior User Research Manager at Propel, and Mariel Beasley, co-founder and co-director at Common Sense Lab for today's panel. Um, and like I said, we are in this inflationary environment, um, and our research at the Financial Health Network has found that financial health in the U.S. has actually declined. So uh, our nationally representative U.S. Pulse survey found last year that FinHealth was down overall for the first time in the five years we've been running the survey. And people are having trouble managing their cash flows. One in five Americans are now spending more than they earn. Um, and so a lot of us in the field, a lot of us at this conference are probably thinking, you know, what can we do to support consumers in this environment? And behavioral economics and user research are really powerful tools to help address those challenges. I'm excited for you all to hear from our panelists today, and I will kick things off by turning things over to you, Mariel, um, to ask, you know, from a behavioral perspective, what challenges are people facing in the environment we're in now? Sure. So, um, first of all, thanks for, for having us here. And the Common Sense Lab is a behavioral science research lab within Duke University. And so we partner with fintechs and other partners to essentially design products and services to improve uh, financial outcomes for their users using behavioral science. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about psychology and what are the psychological barriers that people are facing and what are the environmental triggers that could sort of exacerbate some of those psychological barriers. So when we talk about inflation right now, um, I could probably sit up here and talk for three hours about the psychological effects of inflation on, on end users. Um, we have 20 minutes for this entire conversation, so I'll keep it brief. Um, the biggest thing, of course, is that in an inflationary environment, there's just a ton of uncertainty. Um, people don't know how long it's going to last. They don't know if the price that they see today is going to be the same price that they see later. Um, they it, it, essentially, in first of all, people are already very bad, broadly speaking. People are very bad at actually understanding their cash flow, knowing how much money they have in the bank at any given time, because the number that we have, that anchor of this is how much we have in the bank, is not actually a true reflection of how much you have to spend. Because, well, has your rent been taking out, taken out yet? Has your electricity bill been paid yet? And so the timing of when you look at that um, is, is sort of what lets you know uh, how much money you have. And that's, that's not particularly effective. So then when you layer on the uncertainty, you already have sort of a lack of good visibility or knowledge in, into your cash flow, and then you layer on the uncertainty of inflation with rising costs and you don't know what it's going to look like next week, what it can do is it can really sort of put people into this high stress environment. Um, and one of the ways that the body reacts to stress is through this sort of tunneling mechanism. And this basically means that we tend to sort of highly focus on what that is that's stressing us out. Um, and when we talk about finances, this can sometimes be referred to as a scarcity mindset. And so this high stress, this sort of high focus on a limited resource that we don't feel like we have a lot of control over, it causes this scarcity mindset, which is a bandwidth tax. Essentially, it prevents people from being able to think creatively. It makes everything harder. It is essentially equivalent to operating uh, throughout the day as if you had not slept at all the night before. 
So when we think about the effect of inflation on people, particularly people who are already financially stressed, what we're talking about is such an increased amount of stress that you're asking people to function, but without any sleep whatsoever. Um, and if you're like me, if you've had a, a, a few late nights uh, lately, you probably can acknowledge in your own decision-making, in your own behaviors, in your own ability to get work done and respond to things that you need to do, if you haven't slept at all, scarcity and the uncertainty around uh, inflation really adds that and, and layers in um, that, that stress and difficulty. I think that's a great uh, segue to my question for you, Kayla, which is, you know, at Propel, you're working with uh, consumers with low incomes who are managing their SNAP benefits, their food assistance, so some really high stakes money management decisions. Um, what are you seeing uh, from your users and what have you learned about how to help people manage some of the challenges they're facing? Yeah, I mean, I've learned so much over the years. I've been working at Propel for quite a long time. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, we have a mobile app called Providers that allows people to manage their EBT benefits, get free mobile banking, also get access to other save and earn opportunities within the app. So throughout the years in building this product and talking to hundreds of people, I've learned so much. But I think one of the key things uh, really is that people who are living on low or limited incomes are the most resourceful people. They truly know how to make manage their money better than probably any of us can uh, in ways that are really amazing because when there's not that much of it, right, you have to make it stretch so much farther. You have to know where every cent is going to be able to do the th key things you need to do to make it through the month. So sentiments and things around, you know, budget better or here are five ways to save are not really actually that helpful in changing behavior nor are they actually that useful for the individual who's receiving the advice. Um, things that we've learned over the years that are much better at helping people are building tools and features that are designed with dignity, that are ideally designed in collaboration with the people who are going to be using the product, but most importantly are actually meeting people where they are as opposed to where we think they should be. Uh, so actually an experiment that we did a couple years ago with Common Sense Lab uh, is a good example of this. So SNAP benefits are actually deposited uh, once a month on an EBT card for anybody who might not be as familiar with the SNAP program as I am. Uh, and so because of made a lot of things, inflation right now, we're all talking about how grocery prices are so high, also policy, uh, SNAP benefits are not actually intended to last the entire month for households. So. Most people, when they get their first deposit, they get their deposit for the month. They're they've been looking at a zero dollar balance for maybe a week or two weeks or longer. Um, so there's a windfall effect in that. Uh, and what we wanted to do in this experiment was actually try to mitigate that windfall effect. It was very simple. We took the balance, divided by four for each week of the month, and then showed that in the app, just underneath their balance. It said recommended weekly budget, forty six dollars, for example. Uh, and then just let people do with it what they would. And what we saw, actually, with people who were exposed to that part of the experiment, were able to make their benefits last two to three days longer, which, given that SNAP benefits are usually spent within the first seven to 14 days after the deposit, three days actually makes a really big difference. So we've really learned a lot from hearing that and seeing that in the data, but I've learned the most, actually, from speaking to people. In interviews, I would talk to folks, I would talk to them about the app, and they'd be able to quote their recommended weekly, weekly budget to me. They'd be like, oh, my budget, $46 a week. Even if they aren't following it to the T, 
it was an anchor. It was a really useful guideline. It wasn't rigid, but it felt really personal to them and something that they could take with them, easy to remember, easy to use, and help kind of give them those boundaries when they're thinking about spending their SNAP benefits. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of trickled into everything that we build and how we think about building from now on. We even change our language. We don't use the word budget in, at the company. We use the word money management because that's a lot more accurate to what's actually happening. I think it's great that uh, you were able to provide folks with that concrete example, but also to share the way that anchoring onto the principle of dignity has informed the way you do your work and how you're interpreting the learnings that you're seeing in the data and hearing from users. Um, I want to turn to you, Mariel. I know a lot of work has been done recently in behavioral science to figure out how to help people manage their cash flow. So for example, if you prompt people to anticipate uh, why their expenses might be different in the future, it helps them uh, create a more you know, realistic accounting or estimate. Um, and I know Common Sense Lab has worked with a variety of companies to enact solutions along those lines. So can you tell us a little bit about your work in those arenas? Sure, so um, as Kayla mentioned, um, it's, it's what we don't do is we don't come up and say, here's how you budget, right? Um, because as, as mentioned, folks who are on limited income are extremely, they're, they're much more attuned to where their money's going and how they're spending it. But it also, we are all humans, regardless of income levels, and means that we all sometimes make mistakes. And, uh, and the problem is, is that if you have very limited resources, your mistakes, while they're actually fewer, you're making fewer mistakes, but they're more costly. Um, and so that's, you know, that, so we don't come out and just say, here's how you budget. But, but we can't help but notice that there's tons and tons of sort of recommendations out there about here's how you cut things in your budget. Here's how you reduce your spend. And so we actually wanted to get a better sense, going back to this idea of design with dignity, design with the end users in mind, is that a lot of times people are like, oh, you know what? People need to stop getting avocado toast. People need to stop getting Starbucks coffee. And that's gonna, what's going to help them buy a house. I mean, you have to have a lot of coffees to get to a down payment on a house. Um, but we actually said, well, let's actually ask users about what are the expenses that they regret? What are expenses that they would like to reduce? Rather than us telling them, this is what you should reduce. And essentially, uh, we found that the number one thing that people, so we partnered with Capital, which is an app that does automatic savings and, and a few other things, lots and lots of really smart rules to, to help people save automatically and, and easily. And we just surfaced past transactions uh, and asked people to rate how much they regretted that expense. And it was at random, we just sort of randomly pulled an expense over the last 20 days, and then we did an analysis to see the ones that people regret and the ones that people regret a lot, what do they have in common? And essentially what it was, the, uh, the very top thing that people regretted, bank fees. <laughs> Unsurprising, but it turns out that like that overdraft fee that you got, people really regret that. Um, that ATM charge by using an ATM out of network. In the moment, you feel like you gotta have the cash, you gotta do it, it's convenient, but then looking back at it, people really regret it. So that's, that's certainly one. Um, but the second thing, actually there were kind of a, a, a clumping of things, and what we found is that the characteristics of those expenses were things that people had control over. People didn't regret their rent payment or their healthcare costs or even donations to charities. They really regretted things that they felt that they had agency over and that were also kind of frequently, fre frequent expenses. So things like eating out actually was a space. 
But we thought it's probably not all eating out. So we've actually, we're in the middle of a second study, which is trying to get at a little bit understanding of what are the psychological needs that drive certain spend um, that people are trying to fulfill, but could potentially fulfill in other ways in more cost-effective ways. Um, a quick example of not designing with dignity is we did a survey of folks where we recommended, where we basically said, imagine that there's a, an app that, that helps suggest that you cut coffee. And we asked, this was a hypothetical scenario, and we asked people like, how, you know, how, 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 what, how good do you think this advice is? Um, how much do you think you'd, you'd be willing to take this up? And, and basically we had some people who were like, yeah, that's great, definitely, that would be a great design feature in an app. And a bunch of other people said, mm, no, that's a terrible feature. Any ideas the difference between these two groups? The people who said that's a great feature, turns out they weren't coffee drinkers. The people who actually drink coffee were like, no, 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 don't take away my coffee. That's like one of the few moments that I actually enjoy my day. Um, and so this goes back to this idea of designing with dignity and helping people identify what are the psychological needs that they have. And it's not just a blanket recommendation of cut this, cut that to help manage your cash flow. It's identifying what's unique to their situation, unique to their psychological needs, and coming up with alternatives <laughs> to meet those needs without um, actually uh, making people give up things that help provide meaning and joy in their life. I'd actually like to add on to that really quickly, but um, one of the things that we've seen over the years is that, uh, speaking of personalization, things that bring joy, things that are really working for them, is that most of the time people have really interesting, hacky things that they're already doing in their life to make things work. And so as much as you can actually learn from what people are already doing, the tools that they've kind of cobbled together that might not be a formal kind of solution, uh, are actually really great inspiration points, which is why it's so, I mean, I'm going to promote research, user research here, but like, uh, that's why it's so great to actually talk to people and learn what they're doing to be able to then inform your own ability to interact with them and give them tools that they will use and like. I love that. Um, and I think sometimes also you get the opportunity to reflect back to people what you're hearing about um, you know, the tools that you're seeing them use, and that can also be a really powerful moment. Um, I'd love to get the QR code back on the screen uh, for questions, if folks um, can submit their questions on the Slido. So there are a couple, there are a couple of questions already okay. out there. So uh, what are some ways to impart financial advice that resonates with people and what we should not do? So the research suggests that um, just sort of broad financial education that is sort of concepts, it's here's what an interest rate is, that that in absence of connection to a product is just not helpful um, to, to many, many households. There's a huge, very steep decay in retaining that knowledge. So by the time they're actually in a space that, that they would use it, it's just not helpful. So when we think about what is effective for financial education, it's really about just-in-time financial education, mm -hmm. meaning that in the moment that somebody is taking out a loan or in the moment that they're looking at their credit card statement to make a payment, that's when you are giving a very brief rule of thumb on how, here's how to think about interest with your credit card. Um, and that's how you you're sort of build that education, not as a separate component to your product, but that it's actually baked into every interaction there is a learning moment that is through rules of thumb, and it's not sort of this broad concept based, and it is deeply, deeply rooted in the product. Yeah, that actually ties directly to the next question, if you don't mind, um, which is, have you seen uh, beha behavior change 
when they've been when there's been a change to their credit score? Oh. That's No, that one's that one's actually not. That one's from the right last. Here. Yeah, this this one looks like the the behavioral yeah. reaction to credit score. That does seem relevant. Here. Yeah. Um, so I um, I actually am not. That's a great question. I don't have anything top of mind that I can pull of of research that I know that specifically looks at that. Um, I do know that we have done a little bit of research on um, how to display things like a financial health score to people to then help. Um, spur action uh, because we have done some other research where if you show them something that shows that they're doing really poorly uh, that that can uh, actually cause people to disengage right so if you show people that they are doing really really bad um, they we call it the ostrich effect people hate this they want to bury their head in the sand avoid the information um, and and are can be less likely to act and so we did a little bit of research on how do you display this in a way that spurs action um, but I'm, but that's a great question, and uh, email me. Uh, it's just my first name, dot my last name, at duke.edu, and I will look to see if I can find something in the, in the research on this. Yeah, and we have a question about, um, you know, whether helping people invest um, is desirable for people who are struggling with their finances. Um, this is something I'll say that we look at at the Financial Health Network. Uh, we're doing some research and collaboration with an investing app called Stackwell now, so stay tuned for that. Um, uh, although the investing dollars that we're providing to students at historically black colleges and universities as part of this initiative, um, Prudential is providing the funds for the students to invest, so, um, so that's one way to, to um, get folks investing and to study the impact of those investments. But curious if either of you have thoughts on, you know, at what point for someone who has been living on a low income but has aspirations of wealth and wealth building, do you, is it appropriate or prudent or, you know, uh, the right time to talk about investing? So, um, I personally, I think that absolutely, um, the, the, the challenge is when we talk about low income households and investing, we focus all on the risk, right? We say, can they bear the risk? But with that risk also comes the flip side of the benefits and the gains. And, and essentially by saying we, are, we don't think that people can handle the risk, it also means that we are denying them access to the gains. And, um, and that is, I think that's, that's a problem. Um, does it mean that there might be ways that we want to safeguard or, or sort of provide a little bit of a safety net to, to hedge against some of the risk where they can still get some of the gains? Now, I don't design these investment products, so I can't tell you exactly which product it would be that would do that. Um, but, I, but there is a real opportunity, and I think it's important, to allow low-income households access to the benefits and the gains that, that uh, investing brings. And there's lots of research that shows that this is one of the biggest things that contribute to generational wealth, is actually access to capital markets. And if we are denying people access to that or limiting their access because we're worried about risk, that's, um, we're also then limiting their potential to gain wealth and pass that wealth on. Great, I think that's a great summation of kind of a theme of this session and probably some of the other sessions on this track, which is not counting out the consumer that is uh, living with low and moderate income and making it work and finding the hacks, as you said, Kayla. Um, so thank you all for joining us and enjoy the rest of the event. Yes, thank you.
Thank you, ladies. Thank you. And we'll be back in this room at 2.50 to continue our conversation on financial inclusion and health. So please join us back. Thank you, ladies. That was great.